this morning we're going to be concluding our Advent series. Uh, we've been looking all month long at what we have been calling the greater gifts, uh, it, that God has given gifts to His people. Uh, and this morning we're going to be talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God gave the Holy Spirit to His people, to the church on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is the day when God fulfilled His promise to pour out His Spirit upon His church. And it's been interesting, um, over the last hundred years or so, there's, there's been a focus, a shift in focus of, uh, about the Holy Spirit and what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit. And we are focusing, I think, too much of our energy lately on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are important, they are true, the Spirit gives us in different ways. But I think the church has focused so much energy on that um, that it's actually caused some harm and some frustration among believers. It causes some to doubt their salvation rather than focusing on the Holy Spirit himself as the gift that God has given us, that we've been given the Holy Spirit. And the importance of that is that's a reminder that God is present with us now. The Holy Spirit, if you are a believer in Christ, is in you and with you. You have the presence of God anywhere and at all times. And that's the most significant part about the gift of the Holy Spirit. We also need to be reminded of what the Holy Spirit does. His primary responsibility is to exalt Jesus, is to point us to who Jesus is and what he has done, and then to enable us to actually believe that that's true, to believe in the gospel and to trust in him as our Lord and Savior. And then finally, the Holy Spirit equips us to make Jesus known to others. And so that's going to be our focus this morning, is we've been given this great gift of the Holy Spirit. And although we are going to talk a little bit about the Spirit himself, we're going to spend most of our time talking about Jesus, because that is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus and reminds us of who he is and what he has done for that. So we're going to look at this passage of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, so I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. And I'm going to be reading for us verses 14 through 36. This is the word of God, and it has been given to us in love. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let us pray. O Lord and our God, we are grateful that you have given us your word that you've revealed to us the things that we should know about Jesus. We are also grateful that you have given us your Holy Spirit. And your Holy Spirit has opened our hearts and our minds for us to come and to see and to believe in Jesus. Lord, I pray that those of us here that do not know him yet, that today would be the day that they come to know him. And for those of us that already know Jesus, Lord, I pray that you might help us to see him in a new and fresh way this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So earlier in Acts, as the Spirit is poured out on the disciples and on the people there on the day of Pentecost, there are multiple reactions to that. But one of the ways that some of the people are reacting to that is by accusing the disciples of being drunk. They're acting in suspicious ways, and so they're accusing them of having already drank too much. So in response to... The reaction of the crowd, Peter gets up and he, and he preaches a sermon, because that's what preachers do. We preach sermons. So that's what Peter does. He preaches a sermon. Uh, he says, you know, the disciples, they've been accused of being drunk, and so Peter ca- counters this charge in two ways. The first, look at verse 15. It says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of their day. Peter's saying, look at the facts. Look at the facts. It is only the third hour of the day, which is about 9 a.m. Peter's argument is that it's too early in the day for people to have already been drunk. And not only that, uh, not only is it early, but it's a feast day. It's the day of Pentecost. And the Jews would typically, they would fast during the morning on these feast days, and then the celebration would happen later in the day. So common sense says that these people are, are not drunk. It's too early. It's a feast day. They would be fasting Um, So the idea that they're drunk doesn't make a lot of sense. But Peter doesn't stop there because he counters their argument in in another way. And that is he points them to scriptures. He points them to the Old Testament. The Old Testament has predicted that this was going to happen. So they shouldn't be surprised. They shouldn't be surprised that the Holy Spirit is being poured out because God had promised to do that. Not only has had the Old Testament's predicted Pentecost, but they predicted uh, everything that was going to happen to Jesus. And that's where Peter goes in his sermon. He preaches about Jesus. This is important for us to see because, as I said earlier, the main purpose of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus, is to point us to who Jesus is and what he has done. 
Uh, He's been given to us so that we might know Him more fully and truly, and that we might make others see Him as well. And so that is what Peter focuses on in this sermon. He starts by showing us that the work of Jesus was predicted in Scriptures. And he points to three Old Testament passages. He points us to Joel 2, to Psalm 16, and to Psalm 110. But let us start with the first one, with Joel 2. And this is found in verses 17 through 21. So he he quotes from Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. uh, And he says that what is happening in their midst, what is happening here on the day of Pentecost, is the fulfillment of this prophecy that was given Back in Joel, through Joel. Joel prophesies that God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And so what's happening this day fits that description. God has promised to send his spirit upon his people. And that happened earlier in that day. So we can see how how Pentecost fulfills at least that part of Joel's prophecy. The part of the, the about the spirit being poured out upon the people. But what else does this prophecy say? What about the rest of it? Joe talks about what is going to happen in the last days. And then he provides us a description of, of these last days. He says that people will prophesy that they'll see visions, that they'll dream dreams, that there are going to be wonders in heaven and signs on earth, that there's going to be blood and fire and vapor of smoke that the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And Peter is now standing in their midst and he's saying that this is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled right now. So how do we understand that? How do we make sense of that? Well, first, this passage reminds us that we are living in the last days. Now, this may seem hard to believe, But Scripture makes this clear time and time again. It defines the last days as the the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Between his first advent and his second advent. And his first coming consists of his life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And his second coming points that day when he will return. That day that we are longing for and waiting for. When he will return to judge the living and the dead. And as we know, the first coming has already happened, but we are still waiting for his second coming. We are still waiting for the second advent. But everything in between those is considered the last days. So Pentecost is the concluding work of Jesus during his first advent. And it therefore it marks the beginning of these last days. It's the concluding work of Advent. That is why Peter goes on and says with absolute surety that the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled. Because we are in the last days. And it starts with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And and part of this is Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. Because he is the Messiah, he is the king, and he has now established his kingdom. His first coming marks the inauguration of his kingdom. And when he returns, that will be the consummation of his kingdom. And we we live between these two events. That means the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now from the right hand of God the Father. But the final full manifestation of his kingdom is still yet to come. Jesus is victorious. He was victorious through his death and resurrection. But the final culmination of his victory is still yet to come. 
So we live in this tension between those two things. We live in this tension between what's called the now and the not yet. We live between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom, which is called by many passages in Scripture, the last days. Now, to help us understand this, uh, the, more, the more we understand this, the more it makes sense of, of Joel's prophecy and how Peter can say that that's being fulfilled in their midst on the day of Pentecost. John Piper describes uh, this prophecy as having two parts. It has a bright part and a dark part. The bright part is found in verses 17 and 18, which includes the pouring out of the Spirit upon the church. In other words, one of the features of the last day is, is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon God's people. And look at who the Spirit is going to be poured out upon. Men and women, young and old, children and servants. It says all flesh in verse 17. But what that does not mean is that every human being is going to have the Spirit poured out upon them. What it does mean is that the Spirit is going to come upon every type of human being. The kingdom of God is going to consist of people from every nation, every tribe, of men and women, of every type of class our society brings up. So one of the characteristics of the last days is that the kingdom of God is going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to include all types of people as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people. And that's what Piper calls the bright part of the prophecy, is that the Spirit's going to continue to be given, and the kingdom of God is going to continue to grow, and the kingdom of God is going to include all types of people the dark part is found in verses 19 and 20. And we see lots of imagery used here, imagery of darkness and of fire and of blood. And once again, this is talking about the last days, which, as I said earlier, includes our time right now, that we are living in a time of darkness and fire and blood. What does that mean? It means that we still live in a fallen, sinful world. It means that our world is going to consist of natural disasters, that there's going to be war and bloodshed, that there's going to be different ways that we find to hurt one another. There's going to be destruction and devastation. Jesus himself uses similar language in Matthew 24 when he says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So these are all things that we should expect before Jesus returns. These are all things we should expect before the second advent. Wars and rumors of wars, bloodshed, famines and natural disasters. Now we don't have to look really far to see that that's true, don't we? Just look at the news, and you'll see that this is an apt description of our world. We see this happening all around us. So how do we react to this? How do we respond to the fact that we live in a fallen world, and we see the effects of sin all around us? We see the effects of sin in our own hearts. How do we respond to that? Well, we can worry we can despair, we can retreat. This passage doesn't allow for that because it reminds us that, yes, there is darkness, but in the midst of that darkness, there is light. 
despite all that is going around us, the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon God's people. Listen to what John Piper says about these last days. He says, The last days will not be totally bleak and will not be totally glorious. In the midst of great stress and global trauma and bloody persecution, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out again and again on the faithful, confessing church of Christ. And she will burn with passion and shine with truth until every people and tribe and tongue have seen the light of the gospel. This is how we are to view and how we are to approach and how we are to live in these last days. There is hope because of the light of the gospel. There is hope because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Yes, we live in a dark world, but there is much light through God's people. Pentecost marks the beginning of this. So Peter answers his accusers. He's saying, we are not drunk. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. Jesus has ushered in his kingdom. And all of this was predicted in the Old Testament. What you are experiencing today, what God's people were experiencing during Pentecost, is the fulfillment of what God said he was going to do hundreds of years earlier. We are in the last days. This is what you've been waiting for. And to drive this point home, Peter goes on to show that Joel 2 is, is not the only prophecy that's being fulfilled that day. Not only did the scriptures predict that Jesus would usher in his kingdom and send us the Holy Spirit, but the scriptures also predicted his death and his resurrection. We see this in verses 25 through 28. This is where Peter now turns his attention to Psalm 16. In the psalm, David says that his heart is glad and his tongue rejoices and that he dwells in hope. And he gives us two reasons as to why. why. Why is he dwelling in hope? Why is he rejoicing? Well, the first is this. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. David had a personal and intimate experience with God, an intimate relationship with God. He, he knew God's presence in his life. He knew that God was always close to him, even in the valley of darkness, that God was with him. And that God would continue to guide him and protect him and care for him. And this gave him peace. And it gave him much joy. This is why he goes on to say, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So David's gladness, David's joy, David's peace, they were found in the relationship he had with God. They were found in the presence of God that he knew. God's nearness to him. I think this is an important reminder for us, too, because we so often look for joy. We look for happiness and security in all the wrong places. It might be money. It might be success. It might be relationships. But they will always fail us. Because true joy and true peace and true happiness will only ever be found in the presence of God. They will only be found in Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Do you believe that's true? The second reason David gives us for feeling this way is found in verse 27. He says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting because you know, David is full of gladness, he's full of joy, he's full of hope because God is near him, and also because he knows that his relationship with God will never end. It'll last forever. He's claiming to have a relationship with God that will be forever. And this is where Peter picks up this psalm and shows us that David's words 
uh, can only be understood through Jesus. That this is ultimately pointing us not to David, but to Jesus himself. Because look what he says about David in verse 29. He says, I can say with confidence that David is dead and that he is buried. And you could go to his grave and you could dig up his rotting bones. He points to a historical fact. David is gone. He's dead. Therefore, David could not be speaking about himself when he said that the Holy One would not see corruption. Because if he was speaking about himself, then those, that didn't happen. Those words did not come true. Because David's body did see corruption. And if that was the case, that promise really couldn't be a source of joy or hope because that's untrue. But David wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking prophetically. And Peter makes this clear in verses 30 and 31. God had promised David that one of his descendants would be the Messiah and that that Messiah would die, but that Messiah would live again and that therefore he would rule forever. So Psalm 16, it points us to Messiah and, and, and Peter showing us that Jesus is the Messiah. It looks forward and says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And we see that in, in verse 31 that Peter actually changes the, the tense of the verbs and he looks to the past. He says, he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In other words, this has already happened. Jesus was killed. Jesus was buried. He talks about this in verse 23. But now he lives. He is no longer in that grave. He was not abandoned. His flesh did not see corruption. Many of us have witnessed the fact that he is now alive. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 16. And so the reason why David is full of gladness and joy and hope it's because of the resurrection. It's because Jesus lives. And since Jesus lives, David's relationship with God will continue forever. And because Jesus lives, our relationship with God will continue forever. We too have the promise of the resurrection. We too have the promise of eternal life with Jesus. This is true for anyone who has faith in Christ. You can have joy. You can have hope. Why? Because Jesus lives. He is alive now. He is ruling and reigning from the right hand of God. And therefore, your relationship, my relationship with God will last forever through Jesus. Peter teaches us that Pentecost was predicted in the Old Testament. That the death and resurrection of Jesus was also predicted in the Old Testament. And then he goes on and shows us that the ascension that when Jesus was ascended to the right hand of God, that that too was also predicted. We see this in verses 34 and 35. And this is where Peter now quotes from Psalm 110, which says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, this psalm was a prophecy about the Messiah, and, and specifically it was about the Messiah's victory and reign that the Messiah would sit forever at the right hand of God. Uh, we've been working through Hebrews the last year, and Hebrews 10.12 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. That is a place of ultimate authority and honor and power. And so Peter is reminding us here that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. So Peter uses these three Old Testament passages to show us that the work of Jesus, what Jesus came to do was predicted hundreds of years earlier that God had made these promises to his people far before Jesus actually walked this earth. That God had promised to send his Holy Spirit upon his people. That God had promised that he would send his Messiah who would suffer and die, but who would be raised victorious over death. That he promised to send his Messiah who would ascend to the right hand of God, the place of ultimate honor, authority, and power. All of these things were predicted in the Old Testament, and all of them have come true. The work of Jesus was predicted, but not only was it predicted, it was also planned. Look at what Peter says in verse 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Once again, Peter is setting everything within a historical context. He states several things, several facts. First, he calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, so they know exactly who he's talking about. The crowd knew exactly who this was. Then he goes and he mentions the works and the wonders and the signs that Jesus did. And look at what he says about them. He did them in your midst. These are things that people can attest to. People saw and experienced So these are are facts, historical facts that people can can verify. That yes, there is a Jesus of Nazareth. And yes, he did these things, many, many witnesses of these things. You know about them. Finally, he mentions that Jesus was crucified by the hands of lawless men. And once again, that's another historical fact. Everybody in that area knows that Jesus died on the cross. That he was crucified by the Romans several weeks earlier. So these are facts that that no one can deny. They're verifiable things at that time. That yes, there was a Jesus of Nazareth. He did amazing things. And the Romans killed him on a cross. So it's within these historical contexts that Peter says two amazing things. First, he looks at the crowd and he says, you crucified Jesus. And he reiterates this again in verse 36. It wasn't just the Romans It wasn't just the Jewish leaders. It was you. And he says this in in a way where it actually carries on forward even to us now. It is as if Peter is standing right here in our midst and he's looking at each of you and he says, you crucified Jesus. You crucified Jesus. Now you may be thinking, well, no, 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 wait a minute. That happened 2,000 years ago. I was not even around. How could I be responsible for killing Jesus? Well, the answer is you're a sinner. Our sin led Jesus to the cross. Every sinner, every one of us, is responsible for his death. And that is why God sent Jesus into our world. And this leads to the heart of the passage, which is found in verse 23. Jesus was delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of of God. The the Greek word used here for definitive plan, it means predetermined will. Peter is saying that Jesus was delivered up 
to be crucified according to God's will. And that the cross was planned for, from eternity past. So what are the implications of this? What are the implications that the cross was part of God's plan and it was his will? It means that the cross was no accident. Jesus' betrayal and suffering and death, it was not a surprise. It was planned and it was intentional. And this should give us great hope because God is in absolute control of all things, including the death of his son. So look at this passage again. It is all about what God has done. Jesus was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Jesus was delivered up according to, the, to God's plan and will. And in verse 24, God raised him up. All of this points to, to what God is doing, not what we are doing. All this happened according to his will. God desired and determined all of this in advance, including the crucifixion. Now, that does not mean that the Jews and the Romans are still not responsible for killing Jesus. It does not mean that we're off the hook either for the crucifixion. See, there's a, there's a tension here between the sovereignty of God and, and the responsibility of man. There's a tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Both are true. God is sovereign. It was his plan for Jesus to die. But at the same time, we are still responsible for his death. God used our sin for his glorious purpose. And he does it in, in such a way where he gets all the glory. There's nothing for us to boast in. Jesus has done it all. Think about it this way. The Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders, they, they planned to kill Jesus. And they planned to kill Jesus in, in order for what? They didn't like his influence. They didn't like his power. They wanted to get rid of him. And they wanted everyone to believe that this Jesus is not the Messiah, that he is just a fraud. At the same time, God planned to kill Jesus. But he did it for a very different reason. He did it in order to, to glorify himself and to prepare Jesus to be the perfect lamb that takes away the sins of the world. See, both planned to kill Jesus. But their purpose for doing so is very different. And in God's sovereignty and grace, he knows all of this and he planned all of this. And he willed all of this in order to accomplish his purpose. And this is a, just a powerful reminder of how God works in our world. It's a reminder of how God works in our lives. Are you here today struggling to believe that God is in control of all things? Do you struggle to trust him with the circumstances of your life? Maybe you're here, and, and even maybe today this is true, or maybe sometime in the past year you, you just really believe that God has abandoned you. That God doesn't love you, that God doesn't care about you. Certainly, I think all of us have experienced times where we just really struggle to believe, why does God allow certain things to happen in our lives? Why does God allow certain things to happen in the world around us? It's natural to wrestle with those kind of questions. It's actually good and healthy to wrestle with those kinds of questions. But I encourage you, when you wrestle with those questions, look to the cross. 
the greatest evil ever committed was planned by God. And it was planned because God intended to use the cross to accomplish something extraordinarily good, to accomplish something powerful and glorious, which is the salvation of sinners, which is yours and my salvation. And this is how God works. God is sovereign. He is in control of all things, and His will will always be done. That is true for the good things in our lives. It's also true for the hard things in our lives. If you struggle with any of that, and I think we all do from time to time, just remember the cross. Remember that the cross was predicted, and it was planned before the foundations of the world. The cross was intentional. And that brings us to our third point, point, which is Jesus' work through his life, death, and resurrection. It was purposeful. In this sermon, Peter talks about the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus. He talks about his death on the cross. He talks about his resurrection and his ascension. He reminds us that all of these things were planned by God for a purpose. That his birth, his life, his ministry, they were all necessary for our salvation. Jesus alone was able to fulfill the covenant. He was perfectly obedient to all of God's laws. Jesus alone was righteous and holy. And therefore, he is able to represent us as our mediator and to to be our great high priest. We also need to be reminded that his death on the cross is also necessary for our salvation. There are actually actually groups of people now within Christendom that really don't believe that the atoning work of Jesus on the cross is necessary. But it is. It was needed, and God sent Jesus to die as an atoning death for our sins because someone had to pay the price for them, and Jesus took that on himself. He paid the price for our sins. God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus instead of us, and that is what we deserve. We deserve his wrath upon us, but Jesus took that upon himself in our place. We're also reminded that Jesus' resurrection was necessary because it validates the work that Jesus has done It validates his sacrifice. It shows us that his sacrifice was accepted by God. That it was sufficient. And it also provides us with hope that death has truly been defeated. We see this in verse 24. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death was defeated by Jesus through his resurrection. This is why Peter can say with absolute confidence in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' life was predicted. It was purposeful. And it was through him, through his work in life and death and resurrection and ascension that he has made it possible now to send his Holy Spirit upon the church as a great gift to us and to usher in the kingdom of God. So we are living in the last days. Jesus is ruling and reigning as our king. And Peter concludes his sermon with this summary statement about Jesus in verse 36. He said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Let us know for certain that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. These are two important titles. 
And everything that Peter has said in his sermon leads to this point that these are titles that we must accept and believe in Jesus. That Jesus is first, he is the Christ. This means he is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah. That he is the king who has delivered us from all of our enemies. And that all who trust in him have been delivered from sin, have been delivered from death, and have been delivered from Satan. And Jesus is the only one that can do that. There is no deliverance apart from him. We also need to embrace him as Lord. That Jesus, recognizing that Jesus has been given authority over all things, including our own lives. Everything and everyone is in submission to him. And this title of Lord also reveals to us, reminds to us his divinity. This is the same title that is used with God the Father. So we're reminded that Jesus is God. And because Jesus is the Christ and he is Lord, he is also our only hope. Salvation is found nowhere else. It is found in no one else. If you've not come to trust in Jesus, if you've not come to him and asked him to deliver you from your sins, then may today be that day. Because Jesus alone accomplishes redemption. And he really is your only hope. His work was predicted in scriptures, in the scriptures his work was planned by God and his work was purposeful. Through him and him alone, you can have life, and you can have life abundantly. So yes, brothers and sisters, we are living in the last days. There are days full of light, but also days full of darkness. But God is in control of all things, and God is good. He sent Jesus to establish his kingdom. He sent Jesus to redeem each one of us. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has sent his Holy Spirit upon us, upon the church, to enable us to be ambassadors and to point others to him. So let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you again for the gift of the Holy Spirit that all who have trusted in Christ have been given the Holy Spirit that we have this strong reminder of knowing that you are with us even now through your Spirit. And we know that the Spirit's primary role is to, to remind us of Jesus and to point us to Him. So Lord, I do pray that through your Spirit, you might help each one of us see Jesus more clearly, to have a greater understanding of what He has done for us, a greater willingness to submit to Him as our Lord, and to rejoice into him as our Savior. But also pray that your spirit would help better equip us to be your ambassadors, to be better representations of Christ, and to point many others to Jesus. We pray that all of this would happen for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.